Well, good morning and welcome to Hope Church, to everyone here in the building in Malmesbury Town Hall, to those watching the live stream, hello, those listening to the podcast a year from now, happy Easter 2024. You're all very welcome. This is episode 66 of our humble and unambitious preaching plan, The Promise and the Purpose, a slow walk through the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. It's the story of Jesus and the founding of the Christian church. And today's message is entitled, Set Your Focus. Turn to a neighbor and tell them, you need to set your focus. You need to set your focus. In 1608, that's a long time ago, isn't it? In 1608, there was a Dutch spectacle maker called Hans Lippehey. And he patented a design for something that he described as an instrument for seeing things that are far away as if they were nearby. So inventive were the descriptions of the product names in the 1600s. An instrument for seeing things that are far away as if they were nearby. A few years later, it became known as a telescope. But in 1608, they hadn't come up with that idea yet. And he said he came up with the idea after spotting some children playing with some spectacle lenses in his workshop. And they said that how the weather vane on the building opposite appeared larger when they viewed it through two lenses. Is that better, number one or number two? Number one, number two. By the following summer in 1609, Galileo had one of them set up in his back garden and he was merrily sketching the moons of Jupiter and the spots on the surface of his teenage son, uh, of, of the son. And in 1996, work began on a project that would become the most expensive telescope ever constructed. Its total budget is expected to come in at something like $9.5 billion. Launch on Christmas Day 2021, the James Webb Space Telescope is expected to show us more of the wonders of God's creation than we have ever seen before. I say we expect it to show us because it's still in the process of being set up. Right now, the James Webb Space Telescope is positioned about one and a half million kilometers away from Earth. And it's got this huge sun shield, space-age parasol, that blocks the sun's rays from shining on its sensitive cameras and disturbing its images. And they want to keep the camera as cold as possible because that makes it as sensitive as possible to take what were going to be glorious pictures of God's creation. In fact, the sunward side of the shield, because you, you can log on to the James Webb's website right now and get all this real-time telemetry from the satellite. How cool is this, right? So you, right now you can see how hot it is. And the sunward side of the James Webb's parasol right now is 51 degrees centigrade. I mean, that is African desert hot. And on the other side of this thin mylar aluminium sunshield is a cool minus 267 degrees centigrade. Or just 6 Kelvin for the scientists in the room. Just 6 degrees above absolute zero. So now that the telescope has been deployed, it's put in position, the scientists are going through this painstaking process of aligning and focusing all the mirrors that gather the light that are going to take these amazing photographic images. 
You see, without the right focus, the James Webb is just the world's most expensive paperweight. And without focus, the images would be useless. You see, focus takes things that are blurry and uncertain and makes them clear to see. And focus brings power. If you've ever played with a magnifying glass in the sun, that magnifying glass can focus the power of the sun and magnify it into a single bright spot of light. And so suddenly the sun that was powerful enough to make you feel warm and take off your jumper can be focused enough to set light to a leaf or a piece of paper. But not an insect, never an insect. We don't do that anymore. So today I want you to think about focus as we continue our journey through Luke. Or as we come towards the end of chapter 9, as uh, Richard read for us earlier. So let me just recap. It starts, verse 51. Then it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go towards Jerusalem. And we notice here at the end of chapter 9 that Luke's narrative really kind of shifts gear as he moves into this new phase of his ministry. The time of preaching the kingdom of God to the, the masses was coming to an end. Now Jesus is moving towards his end game. He's heading towards Jerusalem. He's heading towards the cross. And he knows, he knows exactly what awaits him. That turn of phrase, the time had come for him to be received up, is talking about the culmination of Jesus' ministry time here on earth, when he would be received up back into heaven, having completed all of his work here on earth. Jesus' next objective, get to Jerusalem and complete his mission. So he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. That meant he was looking where he was going. He was facing in the direction of travel on purpose, set out deliberately, ignoring all the distractions that are around him. You see, if you don't look where you're going, you drift off course. You know, have you ever noticed you're driving along and you look at something interesting at the side of the road? You start to you drift, right? When you're walking in the wilderness, tell me I'm right, Critty. When you're walking in the wilderness, you pick a landmark in the distance that's in the direction you want to go, and you keep walking towards that landmark. Because if you don't pay attention, you'll just keep walking in circles. You'll never get where you're trying to go. Jesus was focused on what comes next. He was clear what his purpose was for this season in his life. But I wonder, have you ever, or maybe you know someone who spends more time, more time looking backwards than they do looking forwards? They spend their time focusing in the opposite direction to the direction that they're traveling. You know, we, we are all, unless one of us is a time lord, always traveling into the future. But if you spend all your time looking into your past, you're going to crash into something that you don't see coming. So if you, yeah, when you're driving your car, well, you don't spend all your time looking in the rearview mirror, do you? You look through the windscreen. You're looking where you're going 
not where you've been. You've got to look where you're going. You've got to look where you're going. But sometimes maybe we feel that we don't know where we're going. We're just drifting along. And that's usually because we haven't decided where we want to go. Just haven't decided where we want to go. And that's the key. People often complain that they, they don't know where they're going. They don't go where they know where they're going with their life. They don't know where they're going with their career. They don't know where they're going with their job or in this relationship. But in reality, they've just simply not decided where they want to go. Have you, this morning, decided where you want to go? What have you set your face towards to do? What is your purpose in this season of your life? Now, I've spent so many times in my life as a Christian in some form of limbo because I'm waiting for God to tell me what to do or waiting for God to tell me where to go. Is that just me or have we all been there? Until I realised that it's really quite rarely that God tells us what to do in a loud voice from heaven. Instead, God, decides, God tells us, God guides us in the deciding process. As we decide what to do, God is with us in the deciding. Because the very act of deciding is itself an act of faith. Because in deciding, we're believing that we are, in fact, going to hear that still, small voice of God, just like he promised. And even if we doubt our own abilities and we're convinced that we are, in fact, incompetent, we have faith that our loving Heavenly Father will guide us back onto the good path if we make a mistake. Because the sheep hear the shepherd's voice. We know his voice. That's the, the Bible promises this to be true. So I ask you again, what have you decided to set your face to do? And are you getting on to do it? Maybe you've become, over the last couple of years, disaster distracted. Maybe you got caught up in COVID. Maybe you put your plans on pandemic pause. But it's time to pick up where you left off. To set your face to do those things that God already helped you decide to do. It's time to go back and finish what you started. But let me just give you a word of caution. When you set your face to do something, we need to be careful who we listen to. Because every person who speaks to you is not necessarily bringing you today's fresh word from God. You know, it could just be their own insecurity speaking. Sometimes your actions, sometimes your step of faith can cause other people to self-examine themselves and they begin to criticise you just to make themselves feel better. To justify to themselves why they're not doing what you're doing. Or to justify to themselves their own choices which they consider wrong in the light of what they see you doing. So be careful who you listen to. Well, Jesus, he set his face towards Jerusalem. And he sent a few of his lads on ahead to, set, to sort out the arrangements for his posse but they get a cold shoulder from the Samaritans. Verse 53, it says, But they did not receive him, because, 
because his face was set to journey to Jerusalem. You know, everyone is not on the same mission as you. They may not get what you are doing or where you are going or the speed at which you are traveling. That doesn't mean that you are wrong. It simply means that they are on a different mission. Just because I don't share your passion and enthusiasm for something doesn't mean that you're necessarily on the wrong track. And it doesn't mean that I'm not hearing from God just because I'm not on board with what you're up to right now. You know, we are all called to do different jobs. One body, many parts, remember? And each is our doing our bit to get everything done. The ears aren't necessarily super excited about what the toes are up to. But it doesn't mean the toes are on the wrong track or the ears are heading off in the wrong direction. There are lots of things that we do together. And there are lots of things that we will do separately as well. And not everyone is going to get you or get the mission that God has called you to in this season. And that is okay. Just turn to the person beside you and say, I don't get you, but that's okay. (laughs) I know some of you married couples would need an excuse to say that for many years, (laughs) especially your husbands. Right, verse 54. But when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command the fire to come down from heaven and consume them like Elijah did? Well, the Elijah story that the disciples are referring to was, in fact, Elijah's penultimate miracle recorded in the book of Two Kings. If you know the story of Elijah, you might remember he hit the Jordan with his cloak and the waters parted and he went across with Elisha and then he's taken up in the whirlwind. Probably remember that story from Sunday school. But what they skip over often in Sunday school is what happens the paragraph previously. See, the king of Samaria, the king of the Samaritans, King Ahaziah, he was ill. And he had sent 50 of his soldiers to inquire of the prophet whether or not he would live through this illness. But he didn't send his soldiers to Elijah to inquire of Yahweh what was going on, the God of Israel. He sent his soldiers off to ask of the prophet of the false god, Ekron. Elijah encounters these soldiers off on their mission to find this false prophet. And he gives them a message which they take back to the king. Let me just quickly read it to you from 1 Kings chapter 1. It says this, The messengers, they returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said, Well, there came a man to meet us. And he said, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you have sent off to inquire after Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. And the king said to them, what kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered, he wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather about his waist. And the king said, oh, it was Elijah the Tishbite. So the king of Samaria, he sends back his 50 soldiers to speak to Elijah. Maybe to to challenge the answer. 
But Elijah, he calls down fire from heaven and it consumes the 50 soldiers. So the king sends 50 more soldiers on the same mission. Expecting a different result. I'm sure our military friends recognize people in command who take that attitude. Do the same thing again. Maybe we'll get a different result. Unfortunately, the next 50 soldiers get consumed by fire from heaven as well. So the king says, oh, what shall I do? I'll do the same thing again. So he sends 50 more soldiers off to see Elijah. But this time, he sends them with a competent captain who begs for the life of his soldiers of the prophet. And so instead, Elijah goes with him and delivers the bad news to the king of Samaria in person. You will surely die. It's a nice happy story for a spring Sunday morning, isn't it? God bless you all. But this is the story, I think, that James and John were referring to. James and John, the sons of thunder, Jesus called them. James and John are all kind of, yeah, well, we know what to do with Samaritans. Bring the fire, Jesus. Let's burn them up. Well, I could kind of see the train of thought that James and John may have gone on. In the Elijah story, the king of Samaria, he rejected Yahweh and he sought out and after another God. Here again are the Samaritans rejecting Jesus. So what do they deserve? The fire from heaven, just like happened. But Jesus, he kind of cuts them off, doesn't he? He shuts them down. Verse 55, Jesus says, he turns to them and rebukes them. He said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. What did Jesus mean? That's quite an unusual phrase, isn't it? The manner of spirit you are of. I think he's talking about the spirit that was motivating the actions of the disciples. Was it God's spirit of love and compassion? Was it something else behind those words? Now, John would later go on to write, you know, John who had just said, bring the fire, God, let's burn them up. That same John would later write in 1 John 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who is born of God and knows God, he does not love, so he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That's who John had turned into. And later on in 1 John 4, he says, verse 20, if someone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. You know, quite a shift from John, really, isn't it? Although, as I was just reading that, maybe he didn't turn into a kind of a Mr. Bean vicar. Maybe John still was the son of thunder. Maybe you should probably read 1 John, more a case of, beloved, come on, we've got to love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God, and he knows God. He who does not love doesn't know God. For God is what? God is love. Come on. Maybe, maybe that's how you should read John's letters. It'd be more fun, wouldn't it? But this is what Jesus is talking about. What is the motivator behind the things that we say, the things that come out of our mouths? 
where James and John here motivated by their love for this lost Samaritan people? Were they thinking that a bit of holy fire is what they needed to turn their hearts toward Jesus? I don't think so. I think James and John were kind of reacting to the rejection. I think they were lashing out. It's like, well, well, you rejected our Jesus. Well, well, we reject you right back. We didn't want to come to your stinking village anyway. And, and we, don't, we, don't, we don't like you. Just a few verses previously, James and John and the other disciples had been arguing about who is the greatest. Do you remember Lydia spoke about this on Mother's Day? They'd been arguing about who is the greatest. And now, and now James and John are wanting to show off and call down fire from heaven just like Elijah did. That's what they said, isn't it? Shall we be just like Elijah? James and John, they wanted to be like Elijah. What was the spirit that they were of? Ego, pride, showing off, a bit of self-righteous indignation. It's nothing to do with standing up for Jesus or really anything to do with the Samaritans. This was all about James and John wanting to be like Elijah. Let's call down the fire like Elijah did. Funny, isn't it, how we can just get our focus wrong so easily. There they are stood next to Jesus and they're wanting to be like Elijah. Here they are stood next to the Son of God, the King of Kings, the one whom Elijah was pointing to all the time but they want to be like Elijah. They are stood next to the king of kings and they're wanting to be like the king's messenger. Have you ever caught yourself wanting to be a bit more like someone else? To be more like another Christian? Oh, I wish I could pray like so-and-so. I wish I could preach like so-and-so. I wish I knew my Bible like so-and-so. Of course, every time we do that, we're making the same mistake as James and John. We're wanting to be more like the messenger. We should want to be like a Christian. We should want to be like Christ. What manner of spirit are you of? What's the motivation behind your actions? The next time you find yourself reacting, that kind of instinctive, before you've even thought about what you're thinking about, reaction to a situation, something that was said, what someone did, Notice your heart and your motivations. Do you end up saying something that's designed to make you feel better or do you say something that's designed to make the other person better? Notice the difference. Your homework this week is to check yourself in the mirror. What manner of spirit are you of? James and John, they were being critical. They wanted to punish the Samaritans for rejecting Jesus. But Jesus, he disagreed. Verse 56, he says, The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to what? To save them. Jesus came to save. He came to restore, not to destroy. Sin destroys. Selfishness destroys. Rejecting God destroys us. But Jesus saves. Now to return to John's letter that we quoted earlier, he goes on to say, 1 John 4, he says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Now that word propitiation is sometimes translated as sacrifice. It means to give something up to pay a price and settle a debt. In other words, God loved us and sent his son Jesus who winningly, willingly chose to take upon himself the consequences of all of our sin, all of our selfishness, so that we would be counted innocent and right in God's eyes and welcomed into his presence. Now next Friday, Good Friday, we're going to be remembering the moment that Jesus took all of our sins upon himself when he died in our place on that cross. As a community, we're gathering together to go on that walk of witness from the short stay car park at noon up to the market cross. Now on Friday, the powers of darkness thought they had won. When Jesus died upon that cross, they were partying in hell. They did not realize that Jesus was actually paying the price for our sins. You see, the story doesn't end on Friday. Like I reminded us last week from Corinthians, judge nothing before the time. Judge nothing before the time. And the story of Jesus doesn't end on Good Friday because Easter Sunday is coming. Easter Sunday, when disaster turns into victory, when death turns into life. And this is God's promise to us this morning. You know, we worship the God of the dramatic turnaround. And if you're going through something in your life right now, if you're going through something in your family, if you're going through something in your business, in your body, in your friendship groups, you know, it might feel like Friday where death and disaster and darkness are winning. But God wants to remind you this morning that even when it feels like Friday night, Sunday is coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the God who delights in making things new. You are the God who gives us beauty instead of ashes. You give us a garment of praise instead of a heavy heart. You are the God who turns situations around, turning death on a cross into life after death. Right now, Lord, we give you those things in our lives that look dead and we ask you to restore what has been stolen. We set our focus on you. We set our focus on your kingdom. Thank you, Lord God, for the strength to pick up those things that we've neglected and left unfinished. May we set our face on your plans and your purposes, that we live lives that bring you glory and put a smile upon your face. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. I don't forget, we're going to see you on Good Friday for the Walker Witness. We'll be back here on Easter Sunday at 10.30. That's going to be a family service. It's not going to be live streamed, but the podcast will go up as normal. And don't forget, we've got the Evangelism Confidence Session straight after the service this morning. So grab your coffee and pop along. But until we meet again, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen. God bless you, Hope Church.